0: Kereta, you are listening to the Hearth of Hellenism podcast with your host Angelo Nacios. Thank you for joining me in listening to this episode of The Hearth of Hellenism podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be discussing my several-part series review of the book Modern Witchcraft with the Greek Gods: History, Insights, and Magical Practice by Jason Mankey and Astria Taylor, published by Llewellyn. You can read all of the parts of the review that I have put up on my sub-stack, as of today of the recording, there are five parts to my review. <laughs> yeah, um, and I, I didn't read the entire book yet, but the review so far is based off of the first two chapters of the book. Uh, the introduction was written by Astria, and the second chapter... Um, A Brief History of the Greek Gods was written by Jason. So the five entries on my Substack blog reflect those two chapters and my thoughts on the work. I started really paying attention to the books that are being published. I've noticed that books that deal with uh, Greek themes, uh, Greek religion, Greek polytheism, just dealing with uh, things that are Greek- uh, they become more popular. Uh, Llewellyn, I've noticed this mostly with Llewellyn specifically because that's their pretty much their bread and butter is to make books uh, for witches and pagans, and because topics on like Greek religion, the Greek gods, has largely been underdeveloped. I would say within that the publishing world with for the mind, body, spirit, for paganism, for witchcraft, those sorts of things, traditionally, you know, over the years, it, the audience has been. Uh, into, I guess, more northern European traditions and Wicca and Celtic things. Um, At some point, uh, people started migrating south and uh, going to uh, Greek things. Uh, I I really would like to figure out what caused that migration. Um, I have some uh, ideas of what that might be. That would be a good podcast episode to talk about, you know, the phenomena about... um, why people are being attracted to the to the Greek gods in a very um, big way, and the publishers specifically are publishing for it now. So that means because the publishers are publishing those books, that means that they see an audience and an interest in it and an area to make money off of. So this is why I'm I'm looking at the books. I want I want to see what they're publishing. Also, I want to see what they're publishing because over the last several years of me interacting with pagans online, I've seen a lot of um, anti-Hellenic rhetoric. I've seen people uh, repeat certain ideas that aren't true. I hear people repeating um, uh, all sorts of things. And there's a certain like pattern or a way of thinking. And It can't be just a coincidence that everyone's already thinking these things themselves. I have to assume that they're being taught these things from somewhere. In either case, even if that's not the case, a 101 book, if it presents bad information, it's going to have a ripple effect. If you put the, you know, things that aren't really fact-checked or sourced properly or even presented in a cohesive way, in a meaningful way it can really have a bad impact on a person's uh spiritual growth their religion how they approach the gods uh, and then how they interact with other people you know how we all you know how how, how do many fights start is because you know people have arguments and When people are arguing for bad ideas because they've written a book that they supposedly think the author is an authority figure and knows what they're talking about, they will hold on to those ideas because there's a legitimacy in that idea based off of the fact they got it out of a book by some, you know, witch that's really popular and it's a whole mess. Another reason why I am looking into these pagan books about the Greek gods is because... um the authors of these books they they know that they can't get away with saying whatever they want about the greek gods because there's you know there's an entire academic dis d- discipline concerning this the classics you know ancient history archaeology like all so many um academic disciplines that uh, interface with ancient things um that there's a there are centuries worth of of books out there there's a tons of academia out there there and besides that there's all these primary sources out there concerning you know the ancient greek world and the roman world and a lot of stuff that usually isn't the case when it comes to um i i forget like the the norse religions for example there's a lot less source material i believe um that to be the case I could I could be wrong but from everything that I see online and people talk about they talk about the lack of um, primary sources in those traditions so people have a little bit more um, leeway in kind of inventing things I guess or you know filling in the gap so to speak that really isn't the case with things concerning Greek culture, we have, uh, you know, the Iliad, the Odyssey, we have all of Plato's works, we have tragedies and comedies, we have we have so much materials that for someone uh, to write a book on how to actually try and teach these things to someone to practice, they have to show that they have somewhat done some sort of reading, that there are citations, because it's those citations thats that, is, that that give the the pagan author their legitimacy, along with whatever they're going to present as their personal experiences with the gods. Um, but they have to show citations to show that what they're saying is is rooted in some sort of le- legitimacy, either the primary source itself, or to cite a scholar and use the scholar's opinion, uh, their interpretation. As you know something that you can then apply to your practice, and this is this is so interesting that this phenomena because you really don 't see this in other religions where you know for example uh, like a Greek orthodox person isn 't reading orthodox scholarship to determine how they uh, do their religion. you know you see a lot of this in in pagan circles where they have to do a lot of homework in order to do their religion, and I just find this really interesting, and there 's a good article out out there by a classicist sarah johnston she wrote an article called whose gods are these a classicist look looks at neopaganism and i highly recommend people to to read this article and I'll, i'll i'll see if i can put that in in a link somewhere in the description but i do reference this in the first part of my review of the book and the part of the article um, that Sarah rice she writes, um, I quote, neo-pagans base their practices and systems of belief not only on the ancient sources but also and even more directly on the work of those who study the ancient sources. That is, they create their religions by drawing upon on the scholarship that we produce. so. Part of my review of modern witchcraft with the Greek gods and any pagan book that deals with Greek gods is looking for how these authors, who are not scholars themselves but are practitioners, how are they using scholarship in creating their religions? I think that's very fascinating to understand how the sources um, that scholarship produces. Because remember, scholars, these classicists, ancient historians, archaeologists, they are not producing this scholarship for practitioners. They're not here trying to, you know, create manuals on how to be a pagan. So their ideas, you know, whatever they say, whatever opinion that they give, interpretation that they give, it may be uh, very insightful it may be relevant and it may not be relevant at the end of the day we ha- we have to keep in mind that what what a scholar who isn't a practitioner a classicist who doesn't worship these gods who, who knows what their actual religion is we have to be careful of what they say how farly impacts our own thoughts as practitioners and how we approach um our our traditions concerning the gods this is very important And this brings me now to the the book itself. Um, I'm looking at this right here in front of me. In part one of my review, I look at the first citation that Astria Taylor makes in the book. So she writes, Witchcraft and magical concepts proliferated in the ancient world, especially in connection with pagan deities. Historians believe the vast majority of ancient Greeks used magical practices with deities with deity reverence in order to enhance their everyday lives. Citation. Now, I looked at the citation. The first citation she made after this statement comes from a gra- graduate thesis called "From Daemon to Demon: The Evolution of the Demon from Antiquity to Early Christianity." Uh, from page seven in chapter two of that thesis, magic religion and a short history of the daemon. The only text from this page. I looked up the thesis now, and I read. I looked at. I found the thesis online. You can find these things. It's very easy to find them. Uh, and I went to page seven that that Astria uh, cites, and what she wrote, and where she put the citation it it's not in the page it's not in the thesis that that page 7 of that thesis does not talk about um what she says about how historians believe which historians Uh, believe that the vast majority of ancient Greeks used magical practices with deity reverence in order to enhance their everyday lives. When I read that page, there is nothing in that page that actually talks about, you know, magic and enhancing your life and all this stuff. The only sentence on that page that comes close to what she wrote that has the, (laughs) the word everyday in it you know, everyday life, says the following, thus this shows that magic was not necessarily some arcane thing inaccessible to most, but was present in everyday life. The page itself from that thesis talks about magic itself. It quotes in this thesis, it's quoting from Fritz Graft. What the author of this thesis is trying to kind of get across within this page is that magic was present in everyday life. And that it was not inaccessible. Not that you know that there was, you know, de- you know, magic. But now I had to also point out every time that uh, the authors of this book talk about magic or magical, they're using uh, the spelling with a K in it. So M A G I C K A L, magical. So off the bat, there, this is problematic you know, for her to be writing witchcraft and magical concepts proliferated the ancient world. Historians believe the vast majority of ancient Greeks used magical practices. No, historians <laughs> would not say this. They wouldn't spell it that way. So number one, they wouldn't spell it with a K because the, the the spelling of magic with a K comes from Aleister Crowley. And in the field of classics or, um, ancient history, they're not going to use that spelling because that's not uh, the accepted term for understanding magic in the ancient ancient world. We we use the normal spelling of M-A-G-I-C. I know it's, um, it might be splitting hairs, you might think, but this is very important. And the reason why it's very important when you read these books to To read the the words that they use and how they stitch together uh, sources, uh, academic sources particularly, and how that relates to the words they use. Because um, how Astria or Jason, the two authors of this book, how they understand what magic is with a K and what the reader uh, of the book understands what magic is, again with the K, is different than the scholar who is studying magic in the ancient world or magic as the ancients themselves understood it. That kind of, uh, the Greek word "magia," magia, which is translated into English as magic, is very <laughs> different from this occult modern idea of magic and when someone who's reading this book doesn't understand the difference between the 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 case spelling of magic and what that might entail again for for i would assume that they would include just about almost anything under that term as magic, including divination or, um, all sorts of things that the ancients themselves might not include. Um, you know, um, uh, mind, um, there were some other things that I saw later on in the book that they like included as magical practices, like, you know, um, like, a, uh, we'll get to it later, but it's just like, this, this doesn't match what the, what anything in academia or, or the ancients themselves so you're causing confusion you're projecting onto the past your ideas of a magical practice and you're trying to uh, appropriate the ancients into your ideas that are not part of the ancient world so this is very problematic okay so read part one of the review if you want a full account of those issues about the improper use of a source uh, and also the conversation over magic, you know, my gear, those distinctions. In part two of my review, I talk about um, her, Taylor's arguments now. Uh, she she ch- does a lot of work trying to debunk um, her the argument she puts forward that people will say, oh, you know, there are some people out there who say you shouldn't do magic because... Um, the gods will punish you that the gods you know you know it's hubris to do magic and uh you know uh, i'm going to tell you why that is wrong and so she tries to debunk that or to refute that by by the following so she writes um you know she she points to the the myth of icarus now (laughs) She writes, although Greek myths document the gods punishing people for being excessively prideful, it was never for witchcraft or magic, with a K. Remember, it's always with a K when they spell magic. One of the best-known ancient Greek stories of pride and punishment was the story of Icarus. His father created wax wings for him, which allowed him to fly through the air just like a god, or so he thought. As Icarus started to fly toward the sun, the heat melted his wings, causing him to fall into the sea and perish. His wings weren't magical, though they were a technological invention. His fault lay in his thinking that he was immortal and as powerful as a god, a belief that most witches do not adhere to. And this comes from page 3 of the book. There's so much wrong here. So... The myth of of Icarus is an excellent example of the consequences of hubris, the excessive pride or self-confidence that often leads to a person's downfall. The myth, however, does not feature any god who punishes Icarus. Icarus's downfall is the result of his own actions. His hubris and lack of Phronesis, practical wisdom, led to his demise. Uh, myths that involve gods directly punishing a mortal for their hubris are numerous, but Icarus is not one of them. Why did Taylor choose Icarus? It doesn't really make sense. It doesn't prove her point. Um, beyond a surface reading, this myth has deeper esoteric meanings. One only needs to apply a bit of Plainism to understand those meanings. If you want to consult the ancients themselves on this myth, there are there is a good exegesis by Lucian. Uh, he writes in his book titled Astrology, Icarus was governed by youth and recklessness and sought not to uh, sought not the attainable, but let his mind carry him to the zenith. He came short of truth and defected from reason and was uh, precipitated into the sea of unfathomable perplexities. End quote. Taylor identifies Icarus's fault as him thinking that he was immortal and as powerful as a god. This seems to be her own interpretation as I cannot find that sort of exegesis from primary sources that I have read. Uh, The quote that I give is a good example of an ancient uh, accounting and explanation of Icarus. Um, There's no mention of Icarus thinking that he was immortal or powerful like a god. Um, So, this is a good example of, again, a pagan book um, written by someone who isn't trained in the history of these things or the primary sources or how to actually do the research in the primary sources. It seems because if you're going to reference a myth to prove your point, you don't think to find out if there's anything out there that the ancients said about Icarus. It seems not. It seems that... You know, the author decided to just reference the myth and then provide their own interpretation uh, to that myth. But how is the uh, how is the reader of this book supposed to know? This is this is this is the problem here. How is the reader supposed to know between what is um, factual in the myth and what is factual in the interpretation? Because uh, reading the book if you're not aware of these things, you would likely assume that what Astria is saying is might be true, that, oh yeah, Icarus thought he was powerful like a god. And what happens when someone reads that? They're going to repeat it. They're going to repeat it. They're going to repeat it. And everyone's going to uh, slowly develop this idea that Icarus thought he was he was a god and, that's, and he was punished by a god for that. It's like, no, no, honey, no, this is completely wrong. So that's part two of the review. I talk about that particular issue about Icarus. And then I also address her claim that, you know, uh, she she claims that uh, in myth and in, in Greek fiction, witches aren't the figure of people who get punished. Uh, I also address that in part two of why that's the case. Again, Taylor doesn't do her research. You know, I, I, I can tell that. There's not a lot of real research going on here so far in the introduction, and it's 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 problematic. And then in part three, I talk about how Taylor uses the Greek magical papyri um, as a part of her argument. I'm I'm going to kind of skip this part. I'm not gonna, I'm not going to talk about part three in the podcast here. You can go read part three. Um, it talks about the Greek magical papyri. Part 4 of the review actually goes into the next chapter, chapter 2, uh, that Jason wrote. So part 4 and part 5 of my reviews deal with um, chapter 2. Now, in this part of the review, there's a lot that I had to say about it. But the one thing I really uh, I noticed is that... The book because the book is written by practitioners of a religion, witchcraft in this case, the narrative about the gods is fully theological rather than historical or even anthropological. When Mankey writes, quote, the Greek gods traveled across the ancient world, and quote, the Greek gods have traveled far and wide over the last thirty five hundred years, this is a theological statement. A historian or anthropologist would never say the gods themselves travel. To explain how the Greek gods appear in all the geographical places that Manke, um describes them appearing, you know, in, in this in this chapter he talks about how like the gods, they you know they he, he tries to create a narrative of these gods, you know, traveling and where have they where have they been and where they are now, and I think there's reasons for this, and we'll get to that. But I've noticed this narrative is like oh you know the they, the Greek gods they've traveled and. Um, you know, they're now they're on they're on continents and on buildings that the the original worshippers would never have imagined or didn't know exist. And I'm and I'm reading this going, I go, Do, does he really think the fact that there are Greek gods on North America on public buildings, for for example, that that is because the gods d- did it themselves? Like, are are how are uh, really? I go the only reason that though the Greek gods are on buildings in, in North America is because of colonialism, white supremacy, Eurocentrism, um, all of that. And you want to complete and he wants to completely sidestep that and kind of be like, Oh, these gods, you know, they just they just happen to just go places like are we really going to ignore the real reasons, which is humans? People bring the gods with them. When people travel, they bring their religions with them. But you really can't say that in the case of the Greek gods, is because the people who, you know, put, again, like I just said, the people who put up those statues or whatever are from their colonialists they're bringing their culture and their their the white supremacy and all that with them to where they're going uh this isn't this isn't uh you know the gods just wanting to like oh i'm going to go to north america i'm going to put myself up on like on a building like come on and then then this this it got me thinking i remember what what uh astria said in her introduction she she wrote most historians agree that ancient Greece shaped the world that followed and some of the best parts of our society may have come from the Greeks. It's our opinion that the Greek gods were behind these improvements and they continue to evolve alongside humanity into the modern era, page 4. This framing made by the authors reminded me of an article called The Whitening Thief, Latent White Supremacy in Percy Jackson. And in that article, they quote a, a section from Percy Jackson, which, which explains uh, why the Greek gods are in New York City. on, on uh, you know, Why is Olympus on uh, the Empire State Building? And it says here, The gods move with the heart of the West. What you call Western civilization is a living force, a collective consciousness that has burned bright for thousands of years. The gods are part of it. You might even say they are the source of it, or at least they are tied so tightly to it that They couldn't possibly fade, not unless all of Western civilization were obliterated. The fire started in Greece. Then, as you well know, the heart of the fire moved to Rome, and so did the gods. They moved to Germany, to France, to Spain for a while. Whether the flame was brightest, the gods were there. They spent several centuries in England, and yes, Percy, of course, they are now in your United States. America is now the heart of the flame. It It is the great power of the West, and so Olympus is here. And I I get chills right now reading this because this... It reminds me so much of the framing of how Jason and Astria are framing things about the gods traveling, you know, these gods, you know, oh, Zeus has roots in like Indo-European, you know, thousands of years ago. And then, you know, the god came down into the Aegean and then the gods spread over here and the gods spread over here. And then da, 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 and they, they they trace this timeline of like the gods, you know, supposedly the gods are, you know, doing these things and it's not it's it's people people are doing these things people have religions people make images of gods people write about them it's people doing these things and they completely ignore the people because they want to focus again i think they want to focus they want to try and create an argument that you know it's the gods themselves doing these things and that you know they're here in america um for whatever reason they they put and you know they write you know I, and i'm not saying that the authors are consciously promoting white supremacy. I just think that they are completely blinded to the fact that the, that the ideas they put forward are rooted in white supremacy. So that is part four of the review. I talk about that and in a little bit of other things. Then in part five of the review, I'm still dealing with the, the second chapter that Jason wrote, and I find it also—all of this is just so problematic— uh, he writes, there are many ways to tell the story of how the Greek gods spread across the earth, but the one he doesn't really talk about is people. Okay, he doesn't really talk about people in any um, important way. But going back to the quote here, but in but instead of beginning our tale in the usual spot, Greece, we've chosen to start in the heart of Eurasia, in present day, in the present day country of Ukraine and surrounding environs. There, starting about 6,000 years ago, a group of people we today call Indo-Europeans began spreading out across Europe and Asia. The Indo-Europeans were not a racial group, but rather a cultural group. They lived primarily as herders of cattle, which necessitated their need to travel. Firstly, um, since this is a witchcraft book, I think it's overkill to go so far back in time to try and tell your your history of the Greek gods since you're not actually talking about Greek, God, Greek gods now but hypothetical gods that may be the Greek gods' predecessors. Also the practitioners who would be reading this book won't be working with these hypothetical predecessors they're going to be working with the Greek gods or at least what they think are what they conceive of the Greek gods as being. So how does this really help the practitioner with their religion? I don't think this, this sort of uh, narrative or presentation of history is really designed to help the, the practitioner in their religion. It's there to really um, un-Greek the Greek gods, to, to diminish the Greekness of them, to try to, again, I think that the large-scale narrative that is being constructed in this book is that these gods, again, like the author is talking to the, the reader, I think this is the implicit narrative or the what they hope that the reader picks up on is that these gods that you worship that we call Greek gods, they are bigger than the Greeks, they stem before the Greeks, they go further back to people who weren't Greeks, and they've moved through history with all sorts of other peoples into the renaissance into the modern world and and they include all sorts of things like percy jackson they have a timeline jason writes a timeline of the greek gods Going back from like ancient, ancient times all the way to like, you know, the publishing of Percy Jackson, Percy Jackson has nothing to do with the Persian Wars. Why is why why are those two events in history linked together in a timeline called, you know, a timeline of the Greek gods? It's 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 utter it's utter it's insanity. I'm sorry, it's insanity. But anyway, that's what I really think that's going on here. Is they're trying to stitch this grand narrative of of these gods originating far away from Greece far many years ago and trying to make an argument maybe that the Greek gods as we understand them in Greece is sort of like partial story of things that it's not the full picture that you know there's 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 been a lot before it and there's gonna be a lot after it and we don't have to really be held down by the Greek part of it. While still retaining the Greek names of the gods. Like I get it. Like, if you're going to do that and you don't want to be shackled by, I guess, the sources and the history in which the gods were context in in their societies and by the people who worship those gods. You don't wanna be if you don't be shackled to that then give new names like why are you still using the greek god's names why don't you use the roman names you use the roman names instead of zeus use jupiter like why what's with the attachment to the greek names i don't get it so i just it's, it's it boggles my mind anyway back to the book What's, what I find problematic with the whole Indo-European thing, too, is that Manki is wrong to describe the Indo-Europeans as a cultural group, since it is a linguistic term. It's not a cultural group. Um, Mankey on this page, uh, cites M.L. West's Indo-European uh, poetry and myth. And so, what does M.L. West say in the book? So, this is page one of that book that Manki cites, but... Did he read it? He didn't cite it. Uh, he, he cited a different page. Um, but on the first page, it says, Indo-European is primarily a term of historical linguistics. It refers to the great family of languages... That now extends across every continent and already 2,000 years ago extends across the whole breadth of Europe and large tracts of Central and Southern Asia as it refers to the hypothetical ancestral language from which all the recorded Indo-European languages descend. Manke fails to explain to the reader that Indo-European is a hypothetical ancestral language and writes in a way that assumes that the language and people truly existed and that they had a culture and had gods that are, without doubt, the forerunners of the Greek gods. Everything that has to do has has to concern with Indo-European is hypothetical and reconstructed by scholars. Yes, it's very, very likely that all this really did exist, but again, we lack direct evidence, so everything is based on hypothesis and really good reconstructions, but there are reconstructions, so you still have to preface that things are hypothetical. You cannot claim with you know with certainty that XYZ things were in fact historically you know, factual. You don't actually have a his like historical um, things here to point to. Um, again, I my my education is in history, not linguistics, so I really can't speak to a lot about linguistics. You know, but as as a historian, you know, there is no Indo-European history per se. There's no historical records. We don't have a lot of things to go off of to like point to. You know. The gods necessarily like the, what religion did they have? We don't. We don't got shit. You know, all that stuff is reconstructed again. It's all reconstructed. So I, I spent a lot of time in part five talking about the Indo-European thing. Um, you can read part five for that. I also at the at the end of the review I talk about the the timeline of the Greek gods in this chapter. There were four things on that timeline that were very wrong. Um, the first uh, entry that I point out is. Um, in eight fifty to eight hundred BCE, um, it's written on this timeline. That timeline that the modern Greek alphabet is developed. Um, no, that is not the modern Greek alphabet. That is, it's incorrect. To call the Greek alphabet that was designed and developed in this time period modern. Um, <laughs> that's it, that's just wrong. Uh, the second one, it says, 490 BCE, First Persian War. The Spartans win the Battle of Marathon, as told in the 2006 movie 300. Uh, this is this is wrong. Uh, it's the Athenians who won the Battle of Marathon with their allies. The Spartans were not of all involved in this, and the movie 300 depicts the Spartans fighting the Persians at Thermopylae in 380 BCE in the Second Persian Wars. Um, this is completely wrong. The next one it says uh, 285 CE, Emperor Diocletian splits the Roman Empire in two, creating an Eastern Empire and Western Empire. Uh, this is incorrect. Emperor Diocletian did not split the Roman Empire into two empires. Instead, Diocletian implemented the creation of the Tetrarchy, a system of government in which the Roman Empire was divided into four administrative regions, each with its own ruler. The four rulers were known as Tetrarchs and were responsible for governing their respective regions. It was still one empire, the Roman Empire. And then this one, I think, is the funniest one. Uh, 476 CE, the Eastern Roman Empire is conquered by the Germans. Again, wrong. Um, In in 476, the last Roman emperor of the West, Romulus Augustus, was deposed by the Germanic king um, um, Odoacer. I'm so bad at that name. Odoacer, I'm sorry, Odoacer. Uh, who declared himself ruler of Italy. So um, the Western portion of the Roman Empire fell, not the Eastern. I really don't know how you really f- messed that up. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, part five of the review. Um, again, I recommend you read all, par- all five parts um, that are posted on the Substack to get a full idea of what we're dealing with here with this book. I've read some other things. I I started I started reading some of the chapters on the gods themselves and it's 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 such a mess. There's there's good information in terms of like okay, I see that you cited such and such a scholar, so what you put in, put in that sentence is correct, but then later when you interject your ideas, your personal ideas when it comes to religious things, it's utter shit. Like honestly, people, it it's it's horrible um, I, I'm, I'm contemplating whether or not I continue reading and reviewing the book, but at this time, I think I'm going to put it aside because it, it's, it's, it's a mess. It's really a mess, but thank you for listening, everyone. I wish you all the best and take care until next time.